Hey everybody, um, my name is Paul Garland, I'm one of the partners here at Kevin Little. Um, thank you all very much for coming this morning. Uh, we've got some colleagues up here on the panel, Rachel Boothroyd, Jeremy Harris and Susie Schmidt, who you'll be hearing from later, and Phil Moore is somewhere in the crowd uh, from the Common Life. Um, and I'll talk to you about them in a second as well. Um, so, social media governance. Um, I think the the response that we had to the invitations that went out for this event um, are a real reflection of how quickly this is rising up businesses' agenda. Um, it, it obviously provides huge opportunities for brands and businesses, um, but but I think many businesses we're finding and speaking to are finding it really hard to get to grips with it, with, with it all and, and a real challenge, both in terms of how to structure things internally, get some governance in place. Um, and really, uh, also how, how to, 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 to make sure that legal fits in in the right way. How does the in-house team, uh, what role do they play? And how should they uh, be integrated into it all? So the challenge really for all this stems from the fact that it touches so many different parts of the business. This is our attempt at uh, a bit of a corporate social media wheel. Um, and we've put legal up here, along with all the other um, areas which we think are very uh, very important in all this, and obviously it's integrating all those that, that, that is the key to all this. But you're often dealing with some key assets of the business, the brands, customers, customers' data, and there's a, a huge um, risk issue as well in all of this. Um, so that's where legal fits in, in some of these areas which we'll be covering, covering today. So here's uh, and I've been an outline of today's agenda. Um, I'm going to introduce you to, to what we're, we're launching today is our, our, our social media team. Um, we'll then go on to look at some top tips for, for in-house counsel and then run on to the social media landscape, social media issues, looking at some of the contractual aspects um, of the use of social media, some liability and litigation issues, and then a, set of, a presentation from Comify who are one of the leading uh, software providers in this space um, from Phil. And then we should have lots of time at the end um, for some questions from, from, from you guys. Um, we've set up a, a hashtag social media gov, so please feel free to tweet away during the session. Um, so as I say, we've, um, we've pulled together all our uh, different areas of specialization within the firm. We specialize in this area, social media, but here's our um, social media team. Um, I say you'll be hearing from Susie, Rachel, and Jeremy in a minute. We've started to see some themes in terms of getting, getting this um, social media governance in place. Um, I, I'll put some of them up there. I mean, the first is get the attention of the business. Legal definitely has a role here. It's important that you're part of the dialogue, um, and you'll hear more this morning about the different issues that, that that raises. The second is to engage with those stakeholders. You've got that wheel. You've got a huge range of different people um, that, that need to be involved in all this discussion. And again, legal's got a part to play in that. They need to be in the dialogue, but also they can help with that, um, with, with getting everyone together. So plan for the worst, hope for the best. Not, not too negative, hopefully, but, but mistakes will happen. And being ready for those mistakes, knowing how you're going to deal with the rogue tweet or an employee doing something wrong, uh, well in advance is really important. And you may not yet be where you want to get to in all of this. Um, it's going to be an evolving process. So starting to develop a roadmap, working out where you want to get to is really important. And using the right resources for that. There may be lots of things you can do internally, but also there's a growing number of external resources that, that are very important here in terms of moderation uh, and the technical, um, technical support you can get. And finally, being aware of the contractual and regulatory landscape. This is an area crowded with IP, contracts, privacy issues. You can hear more about that today. I'm going to leave it there and hand over to Rachel. Can you hear me? Is that all right? Well, good morning. My name is Rachel Boothroyd and I'm a consultant here at Camp Little. Um, I also have a separate role on the other side of the fence. I'm an in-house lawyer at Global Social Media Management Agency eModeration. So from both sides of the social media fence, I see a lot of issues. I'd like to share some of those this morning. I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes or so talking about two areas. The first one is just to look at the social media landscape. 
Now it may be a very familiar landscape to some of you, but to others not. So we'll take a quick count around that. And in the second half, we'll look at some social media issues and the context for us as lawyers working with social media. So taking a look at the landscape, it looks rather nice at the moment. And the big player in all of them, particularly since Friday, is Facebook. So here's actually a copy of my Facebook page. And um, the reason, of course, brands um, such as those you work for are getting so excited about Facebook is the presence on the timeline of brands that you follow. You may not be able to see there, but I follow eModeration and MTV. And they appear with the same weight as my friends. So essentially, we become friends with a brand. Um, who in here actually uses Facebook regularly? Right. So a fair representation of, of the global demographic. A lot of speculation about the value of advertising on Facebook. This happened last week. General Motors pulled their advertising, saying it wasn't actually worth doing. Now, this is Yammer. Um, you may or may not have heard of internal social networks. Is there anyone here for, who works for a business who has an internal social network? Yeah. Yammer? Yeah. yeah well, we use this at eModeration. It's a virtual company, so um, it enables those water cooler conversations and has been described as the glue for many companies. So it has that internal enterprise application as well. And the next one we tend to think of is Twitter. Now, I absolutely adore Twitter. Who here uses Twitter? Yeah, again, fairly representative in numbers. I find it a great way to get hold of useful information around the web. Follow interesting brands, interesting individuals, and the big thing is about sending you to useful information, blog posts, videos, that kind of thing. And again, the excitement for brands is this parity with individuals. It enables that conversation with a brand. So Channel 4 send me something interesting, I'll follow it. And as Paul said, we've got this hashtag, and that's how you start a, a conversation. You may notice, if you watch any of the popular TV programs, they'll be talking about trending and putting up the hashtag to follow. Um, so we'll see if we can get trending today. Putting up individual tweets, that's how it works. And the same for a brand, again, that parity between the individual and the brand, enabling a conversation. Another one is LinkedIn. How many people here are LinkedIn? Yeah, I think that would say fairly representative of this type of community. It's a bit of a different one because it's sort of business, but it's individual. It's about our jobs, what we do. And looking at the comparison, the relative use of the social networks, I mean, this is why Facebook's valuation is as it is. This is from September last year, and really the numbers, the hard numbers don't matter. It's about the relative value. One in five of every web page visits is to a Facebook page. So looking at some new kids on the block, as it were, Google Plus. Um, I think the jury's out about Google Plus. Apparently the use in states is a lot bigger than it is here. Um, trying to do something slightly different to Facebook, but perhaps not that different. And the big new platform story this year has been Pinterest. Who's on Pinterest? Yeah, I mean, it's had exponential growth this year and certainly good for clothing brands, any kind of design aspect is where we tend to see Pinterest pinning pictures from the web. So that's a quick look around the landscape. In this look at the issues and the context for us working in social media, I'm going to look at three things. Firstly, the people that you deal with, because that's the big thing about social media, as Paul said, it pulls in lots of people from all around the business due to its very nature. Um, the second aspect is some issues that different brands have experienced, crises. And finally, a little look at how it might apply to your business. Now, everyone in this room probably has their own attitude to social media of how you think it's actually going to make a difference to your business, your job, and its usefulness. And Harvard Business Review, I think, did a brilliant thing of distilling this down to six current attitudes to social media. The first one is that it's just a folly. Now, a lot of this, I, I'm old enough to remember, as I was talking to someone earlier, the start of the internet. And this was what a lot of people thought about the internet. In fact, my head of department said, it's all well and good for a bit of fun, but there will never be any money in it. 
So you may know somebody, in fact, some of you may be in that camp. Fear, uh, good one for the lawyers. Oh my goodness, there are so many legal issues here. Let's just stay away from it. Flippant, you may deal with uh, some in your business who have this attitude. Hey, it's fine. We don't have any legal issues. It's not really a problem. Formulating, this is where it starts to get interesting. Working out how it can be used within the business. What are the opportunities? I know there are many of your businesses that are in that stage at the moment. Forging, creating real solid links with how the business has worked in the past. And then the exciting one, fusing, where social media isn't this thing that sits on the side that a few niche people do, but it's actually completely incorporated into the fabric of the business and the way it operates. Apparently there are still very few businesses who are that, at that stage. So as lawyers, we don't deal with problems, we deal with issues. And social media tends to add a multiplier to anything. So instead of dealing with just issues, we end up with a crisis. Now we took a look at crises and uh, some of the top ones particularly that happened last year. And it seemed to us there are eight habits of highly effective crises. Uh, it's unfortunate it went seven. But anyway, eight habits. And what I mean by highly effective is viral. They start to gather their own momentum beyond the actual incident itself. So they become newsworthy, people pass them around because it's a bit entertaining, <coughs> or, oh, look at that brand, what a disaster. And those eight divide into three main groups. Stuff that happens from someone else, from the outside. Mistakes that are made within the business. And the third area is, you know, life. Things happen, things go wrong, natural disasters, P the classic type of PR issue. So let's take a look at them in more detail. So attack. A group deliberately decide to attack your brand. Um, this was an attack on DKNY by the Anti-Fur League PETA, you may be aware of it. Um, and never underestimate the ability of a social grouping to coordinate themselves to do an attack. This was a sequential series of postings on the Facebook page to spell out down the side, DK Bunny Butcher, not very good. Uh, and that did acquire a lot of publicity. Hacking. Somebody gets the code to your account. Last year, Fox News, under its own brand, put out a series of tweets saying that Barack Obama had in fact been assassinated. You can imagine how quickly that went viral. And for a news channel, that's quite embarrassing. Rogue employees. Never has there been a better time for the rogue employee who does not care about their future job prospects to wreak revenge on their former employer. This chap used to work for Google. He put out a video on YouTube over two minutes long explaining why Google would never be able to build a platform. And he was involved in the platform building team. Uh, someone who used to work at Chrysler got their account and put out that no one in, in quite abusive terms, uh, no one in Detroit knows how to drive. So on to the second category, mistakes that are made within the brand. Now I've politely termed this media confusion. Someone within a brand who's posting social media posts, tweets and so on, is likely to have access to several accounts including their own. Now getting your personal account mixed up with your brand account can be embarrassing. Um, and this happened to the American Red Cross, let's just go back, where a tweet went out under its name saying how someone had got incredibly drunk on a particular brand of beer. Um, they dealt with it really well actually and they put out a very appropriately humorous response um, saying that they deleted, uh, rest assured the Red Cross is sober and we've confiscated the keys. And they actually turned that into a success um, because they got uh, the brand of beer to support them and they got uh, more donations as a result. Due diligence, and this is nothing new to us. Our business creates a new brand, we do due diligence, we check the brand is available. Now Netflix launched a new brand, but in their due diligence process they'd forgotten to check Twitter. And the new brand was actually the name of a very popular drug-smoking cartoon character. They abandoned the brand. 
misjudgment. Now this is a really big one, just getting it wrong, getting the tone, the mood, just really misjudging public opinion. And social media communities are, are quite unforgiving of that, and people will pile in and criticise. Kenneth Cole, the clothing brand, put out a tweet with something comparing their new fashion range to what was happening with the uprising in Egypt. Really inappropriate, and they were forced to put out an apology. And it affects the brand. So the final area is the classic kind of PR issue that could ever have happened, natural disasters <coughs> and so on. Stuff goes wrong, can happen to any of us. Last year, BlackBerry had an email outage, some of you may have experienced it. They were vilified for not putting out enough information on social media channels. The expectation is out there that those channels of communication will be used. They're so effective to reach so many people. A brand or PR issue, again, can happen to any of us. Versace were under attack because of an accusation their sandblasted jeans were damaging the workers in the factory. Again, a tirade of abuse on all the available social media channels. So it probably, I don't want to mean to send anyone back to the sort of fear model of the six attitudes to social media, but the <coughs> good news about all these happening is that it gives us some lessons to learn. It gives us something we can actually implement and perhaps better to get the attention of the business, some examples to give them of how it actually can go wrong. So firstly, security. Often use of social media within a business can build up in an ad hoc way. There can end up being lots of different people with the passwords without much control over them. Certainly not the control that would be put on passwords to, say, our computers and so on. So security. Moderation. There are technical applications, there's human moderation. Uh, and getting the tone right. You know, removing every critical comment is not going to go down well with the community. An employee policy, combined with education, not just the Google example of someone leaving, but people within the business. Everyone who's on a social platform who mentions where they work is in a way an ambassador for the brand. Procedures, make sure they're updated as well as the new ones to cope with social media. And number five, presence. Um, we would argue, looking at the BlackBerry example, that perhaps it's not an option anymore to have presence on a social network. Escalation. If something goes wrong, make sure you've got an escalation procedure and the right people have access to it. And finally, rehearse. It is possible to rehearse these social media crises. And uh, they used to say that within PR terms you had 24 hours to respond to something. They now say, well, three if you're lucky. Uh, so it can be a very high adrenaline experience doing that rehearsal. So finally, a little thought experiment. Imagine. You may not be able to read this, but imagine you run a legal team or a customer service team for the world's fourth favourite cola drink, Perfecta Cola. And this could have happened at any time. A disgruntled ex-employee has filmed himself injecting an unidentified liquid into a can of coke, cola in the firm's bottling plant. You don't know what it is, where the plant is, or what the consequences might be. Again, this could have happened at any time, a nightmare at any time, but the social media multiplier is applied <coughs> to it. And he puts <coughs> that video up on YouTube, and it starts to gather followers. It becomes a news story in its own right. People are sharing it on social media channels. And the questions will start to pile up with rapidity. Who deals with the customers? Who runs the Facebook accounts? Do you have an escalation process? Are the people on it actually there? Are they on holiday? Do your social media teams know it? And what is the response from legal? And what happens next? This. Now, in the social media rehearsals that we have done, we simulate these, these scenes and some brands, just a representative, sat there and they didn't do anything. The messages were piling up from Facebook, they were piling up on Twitter, this was a simulation. They did nothing, we're like, are you alright? They said, well, that would be our advice from legal. We say nothing. And some brands have actually completely changed their legal response to a crisis situation because this isn't really an acceptable output in the age of social media.
or equally as bad, a tweet goes out, an automated tweet, you know, you see you've got another 100,000 followers, great, let's send out an automated message saying it's another beautiful day at the Motorola, completely ignoring what's going on. Which takes us back to the lessons to learn. So thank you very much and I will hand over to Susie. Thanks Rachel. Um, so I think Rachel's made it pretty clear why we all should be interested uh, in social media and also trying to implement some sort of governance policy. And what is also clear is that there is a lot to tackle here and that can be, feel a little bit overwhelming when you're starting to think about how to approach it. And even within legal there are a lot of different issues to deal with and on the slide you know, we've set out some of these categories. So today I'm just going to try and tackle one of them um, and that's the top one, that's contracts with third parties uh, relating to social media. And I'm actually only going to tackle two of those as well. The first one is the contracts that you might have in place with third party agencies. So this could be a social media uh, marketing agency or perhaps uh, your traditional marketing agency which has decided to branch out into these types of services. And these agencies are really important because what they're often doing is producing content for you. They might be responsible for the automated tweets that uh, Rachel's talked about. And so they have a real sense of control over your brand and also the potential for things to go terribly wrong. I'm also going to talk about the contracts that you have in place with social media platforms. And I'm actually going to start with these guys. So contracts, yes, sorry to come back to those, but if any of you are using a social media platform, you are entering into a contract with that platform provider. Um, they have T's and C's, usually in somewhere fairly obscure on the website, and you know, you're entering into those by um, accepting and wanting to use the platform. And these terms aren't negotiated, so they're not really drafted in, in your favour. They've got the platform's interests at heart. So a governance strategy really needs to include some sort of process for firstly identifying what these terms are, setting in place a means for recording them and for checking for updates, and also narrowing down and identifying key categories within the contract which are really important for your use of social media. There are also some complicating factors to these types of contracts and one of which is that they're often written in a very sort of friendly, um, plain English way, which I know we're all encouraged to do, but this can be very ambiguous. You know, they're written, um, the same contract applies whether you're an individual or a company. So they're written in terms like, try not to do this. You know, now that doesn't really have a clear meaning for a brand. It's not clear whether you're allowed to do it or you shouldn't do it. They're also mainly governed by US jurisdiction, often the state of California, uh, and this is certainly not ideal if you end up um, in a dispute in relation to them. So just to illustrate, um, I took a photo of my desk last Thursday night as I sat there looking at the Facebook various terms and conditions, which all interlink and cross-refer to each other. That's just to give you a sense that you know, th they can be quite complicated. We do need to put in place the process for identifying them and evaluating them. I'm just going to look now particularly at two aspects of those contracts and that's how they deal with the platform's use of your content that you upload and also how they deal with your use of data obtained from the platform. <coughs> so your, the use of your content. I've just looked at three platforms in particular and that's Facebook, Twitter and Pinterest. And just to see how they deal with the license that you're granting them when you upload content. Um, to make things simpler, they do approach it in broadly the same way. Uh, that's that you retain rights in the content that you upload, which sounds fantastic. Um, however, you do grant them a license, worldwide transferable license, to use that content in providing the service to you and usually providing the service to others. So it's quite a broad license, it's global, uh, and it can easily mean that your content, your images, your text can quickly become used in some other context. Most crucially, although the license usually says that once you delete content, the license will cease, there's a very important caveat to that. And that's that if your content has been shared by others and they haven't deleted it, it won't be deleted. So what does that mean? What social media is all about sharing. It effectively means you can never be sure that that content can be deleted. 
So if you're posting something on Twitter or you're uploading an image, you cannot be sure you're going to be able to reverse that. And that's really important when you're looking at the crises that can um, eventuate. So where does that take us? I mean, the conclusions on the use of content sounds fairly simple. Just think before you post. It can feel very easy to throw things up onto social media, um, to throw up an image, to throw up some of your brand content. But you know, you really are unleashing something when you do so, and you can't necessarily reverse that. And where that becomes really important is if you're uploading content that you may be, uh, you may hold a license for use of it in a certain context. So even photographs, um, you might have a certain license for using them in a particularly mar particular marketing context um, that you need to be checking and making sure you have the right licenses in place to be granting a global distribution license in your uploading. Okay, so the second topic I want to look at in particular is how the contracts with the platforms deal with your use of data obtained from the platform. Now this is really important if you're using the platform to engage with your users and to obtain information in relation to them. And as companies become more sophisticated in their use of <coughs> social media, this is really where the value lies. Because by using the platforms in this way, you're obtaining incredibly valuable, um, insightful data about users. And this is something that Comify are going to be talking about a bit more after the break, um, perhaps clarifying a few technical areas for you as well. So I've just put up a, a um, see that. just put up a sort of data flow diagram up here to illustrate how the flow might occur. So a consumer, um, such as all the people that put their hands up today saying they use Facebook, um, happily signs up and signs away a lot of important um, data about themselves to Facebook. And then if you're a company using an application, so those are those fancy fun things that come up down the side of your um, Facebook screen, then if you're that company, you're actually going to be obtaining a whole lot of information, specific information about users from Facebook. So that information can be things such as your name, your profile picture, your entire list of friends. It can also be some other fairly disturbing and personal details. So here's a little screenshot of the information that I was asked to submit when I was purely for research purposes, <laughs> um, trying to sign up to online speed dating in Asia. Um, I'm not sure if you can read it on the side, but it's you know got all your basic information, which is name, profile, pic, gender, networks, user ID, you know quite a lot of things. Um, also email address, your birthday, you know things you don't necessarily want handed over. So for a consumer, that's a little bit scary, but we're not here to talk about consumers. Um, from a business perspective, this is actually quite an incredible opportunity to obtain insightful data um, about your users. So in this scenario, if you're using an application, if you were the um, company using the online speed dating application, <coughs> consumers passing that information to Facebook, they're passing it on to you or to your intermediary, and the intermediary is ultimately passing that data on to you with their analysis. So this all sounds fantastic. You might want to use that for your marketing campaign, might want to use it in advertising campaigns on TV or in billboards, etc. However, there's important things to note about this. One of which is that you are very unlikely to own this data. And the second is that the contracts you have with the platforms will govern how you can use it. And you've already seen how complicated those contracts can be. So it's important to go back to them and to understand whether your uses of the data are actually permitted. There is a, a third really important aspect as well, um, which is privacy and data protection, uh, which we're not covering today, but we'd hope to cover in a future social media event. So if you're interested in that, please come back. Okay, so how do the three platforms I've used today deal with this point? Facebook's um, terms and conditions on data are quite complicated and detailed. And that's not surprising because they are the most advanced in this area. They are the most sophisticated at using their user data um, for commercial purposes, really, to, to, to engage with the brands in this way. And they do include some important restrictions that might worry you. Um, for example, you know, you, you can't sell the data. You also can't use um, information about a, a user data in any advertising creative, even if the user consents. Um, and you know, this, this can seem a bit difficult. If the marketing team has got hold of something and they think it's a wonderful idea, you are then there as the in-house lawyer saying, oh, sorry, these ambiguous terms in Facebook's contract say you can't do it. So it can be difficult. 
In contrast, Twitter is much briefer on data, um, but there are there is a similar restriction, and that's really preventing you from taking Twitter data and using it on a separate status update or social network database or service. And what this is really about, and we see it across all the platforms, is a desire to keep you within the platform's boundaries. You, know, you can come in there, you can do what you want, you can use our data, you can use our service for your brand, but don't try taking it elsewhere and doing the same thing. So you do see that kind of corralling of information. Last but not least, um, Pinterest that Rachel mentioned, it is the most brief on data, um, but I think that's really an indication of its youth as a platform, <laughs> and it certainly is going to become more sophisticated and more detailed. Um, so one of those ones to watch the terms because they'll definitely change. So where does that get us? I mean, the important point to note is that <coughs> data is the most valuable aspect of social media for brands. And as um, the use of social media becomes more sophisticated, it will become something that you're all thinking about and you're all um, dealing with more regularly. So think back to those contracts, the platforms. Try and check how they govern your use <coughs> and how they might impact on downstream uses, so use in the marketing campaign. Okay, so that was a quick rattle through the contracts with social media platforms. I'm now going to talk a little bit about the contracts you might have with third-party agencies. So these are the marketing agencies who might be producing content for you, they might be tweeting for you, they might be managing your entire Facebook page, running competitions or campaigns for you and also moderating content and dealing perhaps with crises. The really important point to note about these contracts is that you know it's a marketing agency. You think, I've already got a contract with a marketing agency, I'll just use the same one. But there's some really unique aspects to social media and that needs to be reflected in the agreements that you have with these agencies. Because what they're actually doing is quite different in some, some ways from traditional marketing services. And that's why there are different aspects that need to be covered. I've just put a few up here. So for example, exit transition. It's, it's really important that the contract deals with how that happens. So who hands over the passwords and when? Is there going to be a seamless transfer of the account? What about all the automated tweets or the Facebook page updates? How is that campaign know-how going to be handed over? So it's just important to think through those practical details about the transfer of um, transfer from one supplier to another. Approvals. You know, this is the touch point where your marketing team is dealing with the agency to discuss the content that's going to be going up. So when is that going to happen? Is it, is it every day, every month? Is it only certain categories of information? Who within the marketing team knows about this and is responsible? It's, it's again the practical details that are really specific to social media that need to be thought through. Liability, always a lawyer's favourite. You know, you are giving a third party the right to post global content that can't be deleted in your name. So I think you've got to want to think quite carefully about liability, um, really making sure that they think before they post because um, they're on the hook. I'm just going to focus in on two, two of these. That's moderation, and then I'm going to talk about ownership of IP. Moderation is something that Rachel's mentioned today a few times. And it's really the process of receiving content, looking at content, categorising it perhaps, just seeing what's happening, what's the activity on these, on these social media pages. Because social media is not a static thing. You, know, you put it out there, think people respond. It's not something you can go away and come back to a month later. So moderation is really important. So when you're looking at your contract with an agency and thinking, oh, I know Susie told me I had to say something about moderation, um, where do you start? The most important starting point is to ask your agency to see their moderation guidelines or make sure they have some. Um, and these guidelines will really set out how they're going to approach moderation. Again, the practical details. Are they going to check the account three times a day, once a day, once a week? Only in office hours, on the weekend? Who's going to be checking it? Is it the same person every day who actually knows what your brand is like, or is it a different person every day? You know, these are actually really important aspects that can have a, a direct impact on how a crisis is managed. The other important point is to deal with what happens if they get it wrong. So again, the consequences 
whether you have some sort of service level arrangement within the contract. So the second aspect I wanted to, to, uh, to really look at in detail was ownership of IP and how your contract with a third party agency should deal with this. And you know, this is this is always a key point. You know, what, what will you own in connection with the contract? But it's also another point where going to a traditional service agreement that you have with a marketing agency, it just won't work. The definition won't be appropriate for social media activities. So think about what they're doing. What is the service? What is the work product? And make sure the contract is drafted to reflect that. Ideally, make sure it's drafted to ensure that you obtain ownership in all of that content and all the intellectual property rights generated in connection with those services. So the campaign ideas, to the extent there's IP in those, you'd be wanting to retain ownership, obtain ownership through the contract. Where this becomes really important is if you're wanting to use those ideas or those concepts in a different medium. So you might want to take a really successful campaign from Facebook and use it on, you know, packaging or in-store advertising. Um, again, you want to make sure the contract is clear, you own it, you're able to do that, you're not restricted. And last but definitely not least, I come back to data again. I've talked earlier about how the contracts with platforms restrict your use of data, but inevitably an agency will be generating some sort of IP in it themselves. There'll be a database perhaps of analysis relating to your users. So the contract really needs to capture that. It's actually the most valuable aspect of your activities. You want to make sure you're owning it, you're obtaining it on exit. Okay, that's all I've got time for today. Thanks very much for listening and please tweet to our hashtag. I'm just going to hand over to Jeremy now. Thanks Susie, uh, good morning everyone. Um, picking up on the general theme of today's session, i.e. Uh, you want to ensure that uh, social media is used in the business uh, to maximise maximize all the benefits, um, but also minimise the potential <coughs> liability. Uh, what I want to do now is um, focus, sorry, <coughs> is focusing on some of the key litigation risks that arise as a result of use of social media within your organisation. But also touch on some of the benefits in the litigation context that social media can bring. So the types of litigation uh, risk, there are lots of areas to consider, but what I want to focus on is trademark infringement and passing off, uh, copyright infringement and defamation. And you may look at that and think, well, that's no different to uh, the normal uh, uh, risks that arise through other online aspects of your business or even on offline aspects. And to a certain extent, that's true. But I think the key thing to uh, realize about social media is the frequency with which your business will interact with it. Uh, there are so many social media channels uh, and uh, companies have multiple pages on each channel. So there are far more opportunities for things to fall between the cracks maybe a, a, an overzealous marketing executive to push a message out through social media that is unchecked. And I think it's that frequency of interaction with social media that can cause problems for businesses. So moving on to uh, the first issue, trademark infringement and passing off. Um, what we're obviously talking about here is unchecked, unlicensed use of a third party's brand on your uh, social media page. And liability will arise in, uh, in the situation where it's uh, the use of an identical mark in relation to identical goods and services, or it's a similar or identical mark in relation to similar or identical goods and services, but there's a likelihood of confusion. Or finally, where it's uh, an identical or similar mark in relation to any goods and services, uh, but where there's unfair uh, advantage or detriment to the distinctive character of a prior registered mark. And you can really see how issues might arise due to the nature of social media and the amount of communication methods uh, that you have. And I think therefore what's key is uh, to ensure um, that you have uh, checks and procedures in place so that content which refers to third party brands uh, goes out uh, and, and is approved. Um, when we're talking about marketing, marketing campaigns that go out through social media, um, who's responsible for that? Who's checking the legality of it? Is it an in-house marketing team or is it uh, a third party who's producing that on your behalf? Uh, and finally, advertising, uh, advertising comparative advertising, um, uh, social media is often used for that. So make sure if you're, if you're running a comparative advertising campaign, you're comparing like-for-like uh, -like, uh, criteria. It's an objective comparison. There's no denigration to um, a third party's brand, um, and it's not in any way misleading. 
Um, I think um, that's all well and good, but what, so one of the things that we should remember also is that um, you can use a third party's brand descriptively. Um, so uh, that can be done through social media, but just make sure it's kind of honest and fair. Moving on to copyright infringement. Again, there are lots of ways that a copyright infringement issue can arise. It could be a simple matter of just taking some text from a third party source. It could be a reuse of an image, some music that's shown on your social media page, a video, um, or even linking, uh, for example, to um, a newspaper article. We had the recent case of NLA and Meltwater, which effectively said that um, in some circumstances, um, a headline of an article can attract copyright protection. And the uh, linking to that article and copying of the headline in the link uh, and the, the user clicking on that link could infringe copyright in the headline. So as I said, there are lots of ways that uh, you could uh, infringe copyright. So you have to think of what are you taking and from where? Is it a copyright work in the first place? Um, if it is, are you taking a substantial part? And that will be judged uh, either qualitatively or quantitatively. Um, however, the quality of what's taken is the most important aspect. Where we're talking about music, videos, that sort of thing, um, who's responsible for licensing that? Uh, Susie alluded to this before. Um, if it's being done in-house, um, you want to make sure that you're getting the appropriate approvals uh, internally. Uh, uh, if it's being done by a third-party agency, uh, make sure you know who's responsible for getting the necessary approvals. And also make sure that the approvals sort of span everything that you want to do with the work. <coughs> um, a quick note on parody. Um, social media is often used uh, for parody. Um, there is no defence to uh, copyright infringement in the UK at the moment uh, to, to be parody. Um, so again, you have to look at what are you taking and from where, and whether you're reproducing a substantial part of the original work in your parody. And a final note on things like retweeting uh, and using text from third-party sources. There are kind of unwritten rules of social media that if you're doing that, you need to give an attribution to the source. And the final risk area that I want to talk about is, uh, is defamation. Again, social media pages are often used to refer to competitors, uh, third-party brands, individuals, uh, and so on. Um, so again, think of, uh, are you publishing uh, a statement? Is your organization the publisher? Um, will it lower? The, rep uh, the reputation of a third party in the eyes of the public. Uh, and also think about damage. Um, uh, as Rachel was saying, uh, social media can go viral so quickly. And that's a message that's pushed out there um, that is strays the, the wrong side of the line can go viral really, really quickly and cause substantial damage. So I've talked about some of the key risk areas. Um, but when does liability actually arise? Um, well, I think it all depends on um, whether what's created and what's pushed out in your social media channels um, is, is developed by um, you in-house or whether it's user-generated content. I think it's clear if it's uh, developed in-house, then um, liability will arise. You'll be taken to be the publisher for defamation purposes. You'll be taken to be uh, the uh, person committing uh, an infringing act for copyright infringement. But the situation is different where it's user-generated. For example, people posting things on your Facebook wall uh, and so on. Um, clearly, before you have notice of an infringing act or a defamatory statement, there's unlikely to be any liability. But what about if you're given notice and asked to take it down? Um, it's kind of akin to the, uh, the hosting situation that we find with ISPs. Um, it's likely that uh, if you are given notice, liability may arise. And so therefore, you do need to put in place uh, procedures uh, to take down things that are infringing or potentially defamatory. And then think about the effect of moderation on all of this. There's a clear tension there between um, when you're moderating, uh, whether you're gaining actual knowledge of an infringement. Uh, this has never been tested, but um, it's arguable that if the moderation takes the form of someone actually checking every single message that's posted on your Facebook wall, for example, um, where, where a defamatory comment is seen and acknowledged and nothing's done about it, liability could arise uh, for you to be the publisher. Um, alternatively, if it's a, an automated moderation system, uh, things are just being checked and particular keywords being searched for and pulled out. Obviously, uh, no actual knowledge necessarily um, occurs and therefore uh, liability may not arise. And a final word of ambush marketing. Um, 
obviously uh, events like the Olympics, I'm sure everyone knows about the Olympic regulations. You can't really mention the Olympics or 2012 or, or London um, yeah, without uh, you know, being licensed. So again, think about, uh, educate people internally about uh, ambush marketing through social media uh, and the pitfalls of that. So it's clear that there are some litigation risks, but it's actually not all bad. Uh, social media can be used in, in new and innovative ways uh, in a litigation context. And what I want to talk about are three things, service of court documents, um, evidence of confusion, and alternative dispute resolution. It turns to the first one, service by social media. Um, this really um, applies uh, in relation to claims against individuals. Um, you're obliged under the CPR to serve a claim on the usual or the last known address. So where, where it's a dispute with a company, obviously you can serve on a registered address or where you know their offices are. So if there's a, 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 a wrong committed by an individual, you have to serve on the last known address. But obviously um, you may not know that. You may not have an address for them. Uh, it may relate to an online use. So you could um, apply for a Norwich Farmer order, say from um, uh, a social media provider to, to try and get personal details of the individual, but often that won't work. You might get an incorrect address, or the social media provider just may say no. Um, so if there's a trend in uh, England and overseas of allowing um, alternative uh, service mechanisms utilizing technology, and we've recently seen service by social media. Too. Um, the first, uh, first uh, instance of that was in 2009, where an injunction was uh, allowed to be served uh, on an anonymous uh, uh, Twitter user. In 2007, Hastings County Court allowed a service of an order on an individual to oblige them to come to court for questioning. And similar orders have been seen in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. Um, in, in 2012, February this year, for the first time, an actual claim was uh, served online uh, through Facebook. Um, and the reason for that was that uh, the claimant was unable to ascertain the last known address of the individual. Um, but they uh, adduced evidence before the court that the Facebook account was connected to the defendant. They showed evidence of pictures, of personal details, and common friends. And so the court said, in the circumstances where you can't find an actual address for a defendant, you can serve through social media. Um, if someone is domiciled outside the UK, however, uh, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to do that. Um, the service out procedures say that you have to follow an international regulation or serve under the law of a local jurisdiction. And it's fairly unlikely that uh, any other jurisdictions are going to allow service by social media. So moving on to uh, the next uh, benefit in a litigation context, evidence of confusion. This is really helpful in the context of a passing off action or a trademark infringement action where you want to show that consumers are confused between um, your brand and a third party's brand. So this could be either by gathering evidence from uh, your social media pages of messages, uh, complaints from uh, the public, um, or it could be monitoring uh, statements made through social media. So uh, you could use an automated service to search on certain keywords to pull out uh, uh, evidence of confusion. Or it could be by um, carrying out surveys through social media, having uh, your brand or your goods and an infringing brand, infringing goods, and asking uh, people as to uh, whether they're confused or not. And finally, uh, use of social media in, um, in disputes uh, to, to resolve disputes. Um, obviously, litigation can be uh, time-consuming, expensive, and it's not all, always the most uh, commercially viable uh, option. Uh, I don't want to do us litigators out of too much work, but we have seen recently uh, companies using social media to resolve uh, disputes. Uh, and this, uh, the, the one I want to mention was a dispute between Tati Divine, which is a, a jewellery maker, and Claire's Accessories. Uh, Tati Divine had seen that uh, Claire's Accessories were selling uh, some very similar pieces to Tati Divine. Um, so what did they do? Well, they posted on their blog uh, a piece called Can You Spot the Difference? Uh, and they linked their social media pages to the blog. Uh, and, and this is what uh, the blog said. Um, no, that's not your eyes going funny. We, have, we haven't launched a bright pink version of our dinosaur necklace. The necklace on the left is Tati Divine. The necklace on the right is currently being sold by Claire's Accessories. So there followed a few more examples 
of, of the, the pieces, you can see they're very similar. And, the, and then uh, the, uh, the blog continued uh, with, uh, with this. Um, Tasha Devine said, this isn't the first time that we've noticed this kind of thing at High Street Retailer Claire's. Um, so what do you reckon? Uh, please leave a comment below and let us know what you think. Uh, and also, please let Claire's know your thoughts. You can find them on Twitter, Facebook, or, or that email address. Really clever way of dealing with the issue. Um, as I said, you can see that the pieces are very similar. Um, so what was the outcome? Well, within 24 hours, Claire's Accessories was trending, uh, and not in a good way, uh, on, on Twitter. Uh, and ultimately, the products were removed from Claire's Accessories website. And here's a few more of the updates from the uh, Tati Divine blog. Uh, the 28th of February, they had over 200 comments, took them to a meeting with their legal advisors. Um, if you'd like to carry on the conversation, um, please visit us at Facebook or Twitter. Uh, the 29th of February, some of the pieces have been removed. And then finally, on the 19th of April, we're pleased to announce a resolution has now been reached between Tati Divine and Claire's Accessories. Read the official joint statement um, here. So, I mean, as I said, um, I don't want to do as litigators after too much work, but what a great innovative approach to resolving a dispute. It's not appropriate in all circumstances. Um, you know, you, you, think, you need to think about what remedies you want and whether you're going to get it through use of social media. Um, but it's clear that in that situation, Tati Divine resolved an issue which was actually historic um, with minimal time, cost, and expense. Um, but I think one thing to mention is it's not uh, risk-free. Um, if you are doing that sort of thing, you need to be aware of the grammar threats provisions in relation to trademarks and registered designs. Um, so you need to be careful about what you're putting out there. Um, and also, um, you know, defamatory statements, you need to be sure in your case, you need to make sure that what you're saying is, is fairly objective and sticking to the facts and can be taken to be uh, defamatory. So that's uh, the end of, of my bit. I think we're probably going to have a break now. Uh, so if you take 10 minutes and uh, grab a coffee, and then we'll come back and hear from Commie Fire. Okay, welcome back, everyone. Thanks. Um, back so promptly. Um, just going to hand over now to Phil, from, who's the co-founder and the CEO of, of Commie Fire. Okay, hello, everyone. Um, can you hear me at the back? Because I did struggle a bit earlier, to be honest. Um, okay, so very, very brief introduction um, and something a bit more practical now. So we heard a lot of legal problems. Um, but what I'd like to do is give you a bit of an overview of what you can actually do, um, how you can interact with marketeers, how they can use the channels effectively while being on the safe side. Um, so what I would like to do is give you a very quick overview of Comify. Um, so, Comify, we're one of the leading enterprise-level social media management systems. And I'll, I'll tell you in a second what that actually means. Um, but just briefly, so the product is called the Comify Social Suite. Um, it's about managing your social presence, so Facebook, Twitter, how marketeers can use the channels effectively. Then, in the end, we heard a lot about data and that there's so much rich data on Facebook. And we actually take that data and give marketeers a way to make a lot of use of this data. And then lastly, um, but very importantly, we're also a preferred marketing developer with Facebook. So what that means is there are a lot of, quite a few companies now who've, who are approved by Facebook. So you've got to get a badge, and that means you're following the Facebook terms. Um, you know how to build engaging Facebook applications, you know how to cater properly um, to the needs of social media. So it's a really good way for you as a company to see if the company you want to work with in social media has been approved and is following the best practices. Um, briefly in terms of our clients, so work with the BBC, Unilever, Sony, um, but we also work with quite a few partners, big agencies like LBI. But now, let's actually dive in. So, so what is the social media management system? So it's really all about coming up with a wall between Facebook and your company, or Twitter and your company. 
So when you look at social networks, um, I mean Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest were mentioned today. They were really built for end users that one consumer can access the channel, engage with their friends, um, and, and be social, I guess. And when companies come into the play now, you've got more than one person. You've got whole teams, maybe distributed across different countries, different departments, who start to engage with your fan page on Facebook that was never meant or was never engineered in a way that multiple people can access it at the same time um, in a sort of really safe and um, <coughs> controlled manner. And that's really where the social media management systems are coming in. So they sit behind um, kind of a walled garden, if you like, um, that could be internal in your company, that could be Comify. Um, we're like a, a hosted service as a software as a service. So the marketeers engage with the social media management system, then send messages to the social network. Um, we heard a lot about moderation. Um, so, and when, company, uh, when, when customers make comments on the page, there's something coming back. So the social media management system also deals with all the comments and posts. Um, and they also give moderators, community managers, a more efficient way of dealing with it. So swear words can be flagged up much more easily. You can see if someone had bad behavior in the past. Um, you can then um, rate it. So you can see if you overall have a positive or a negative sentiment. Um, and the main components are really about hosting, planning your campaigns, then interacting with your customers, and then getting the feedback, so analytics, how well are you performing. Um, so that's kind of an overview of what, what a basic social media management system should do. Um, there are about 30 big ones in the world. Um, about four or five are competing with us in the enterprise, enterprise space. Um, and they're normally from, from the US. The US is a little bit ahead of, of the curve here at the moment. Um, but what I thought I'll do, um, I actually map, I map the features of a social media management system to some of the legal issues we heard earlier. Um, Rachel kindly stole some of my examples of when things went wrong, but um, I've, I've got a few other ones. Um, so there are a lot of things that, that need to be done um, in order to, to manage your social presence properly. So one thing is multiple user access. So I say, as I said, the networks were built for one person to access a page, but now you've got whole teams. Um, so you need a way of giving these individuals access. So for instance, with, with Comify, every single user in the marketing team and the moderation team gets access to the platform. And then the platform sends the message to Facebook, to Twitter. Um, so BBC, for instance, doing a great job here. Um, all the marketer, all the um, journalists have access to our platform. Um, so that means they then know who has sent the message. They can set user access permissions. So let's say you've got the BBC breaking news Twitter account. Maybe only 10 journalists are allowed to post on that account. Others are not. But others might be able to post on the sports account. So you can really control who's got access to what. And that really minimizes your risk. Um, and the Red Cross was mentioned. Um, the person should have maybe not have access, had access to, to that account. But also the roles are very important. Um, as we heard, there are marketeers. You've got moderators, um, community managers. So they all have got different responsibilities and should potentially see different parts of the data to make the right decisions. Um, so it's very important to set the right rules and give the right access to the right people. Um, so for instance, think about football players. You might allow them to, but only maybe, post during the day onto Twitter. But at 2 in the morning, when they're really drunk in a club, you probably don't want them to post before someone else is actually checking the post. Um, they probably give secrets away, or they say they they enjoyed themselves with a different lady or something like that. So you you want to set that and, and say who's allowed to do what. Another example is GoDaddy. They're a big hosting company. 
Um, and the CEO shot an elephant. I didn't even know you can still do that. And posted a picture of himself on the official Twitter account. Um, and there are a lot of companies who are like really, I guess, animal friendly, um, who now removed all the hosting from them. So it had a big impact. And during holidays, he probably shouldn't have been on that account. Um, other other examples here are we're, we're talking to quite a few sort of financial institutions during M&As when they're quiet periods. You don't you want to pre-moderate things before they go out during these periods. Um, but also full audit trails are very important. Um, so what that means is in our system, or generally in most of the enterprise social media management system, every action a user takes is tracked. Um, so in the case that was mentioned with Chrysler earlier, uh, no one can drive in, in this city. Um, actually, the agency got fired in the end, um, or, or lost, lost the contract, because they couldn't actually find who actually sent this tweet in the end. Um, and that's normally enough that people know that if they do something silly, it can be traced back. So that's for instance the approach the BBC are taking. They trust their journalists. Um, and it's enough that they know if someone does something stupid on, on the breaking news account that you know who it was. And that normally prevents people from, from doing something silly. Um, system security is very important. Um, so we, we heard about um, accounts being hijacked. Um, so it's really about making sure that the system is enterprise level at an enterprise level and is fulfilling all the security um, requirements so that the hijacking of the accounts can't happen. And then, last but not least, moderation and community management is very important. So inappropriate content, remove it quickly, timely, um, manage it properly. It's, it's a big task. Um, if you look at McDonald's, they're, for instance, not doing a great job. People saying how horrible <laughs> their food is. We might agree with that, but it's probably not what you want on the page. But it's, it's mainly because they can't deal with the sheer volume of content. So it's really important um, to combine good tools with companies like eModeration who do a great job um, doing that with, with, with people um, who can also judge what should be there and what shouldn't. So it's really an overview of how a social media management system can help. Um, what I thought I'd do is, because this is something that comes up a lot with our clients, um, go a little bit more into Facebook applications and the Facebook fan page um, and what stumbling blocks are around here. So yes, there is Twitter, yes, there is Pinterest and so on. But Facebook, it's, that's where 90 million people are. Um, when you look at the UK demographic, this is where the consumers are. This is sort of the social network where companies are actually generating vast amounts of revenue at the moment. Um, so Facebook, we, we saw earlier already, there, there are two big things on Facebook. So you've got the Facebook fan page, and then you've got Facebook applications. So the fan page is something that's provided by Facebook. They give you the structure, you can add the images, you, the people who come, your fans can like you. So this is kind of always very similar, always kind of the same, but kind of adapted. So what the marketeers do is they are responsible for the content, the messages on these pages. And that's, as I said, can be done through a social media management system or posted manually. Um, but overall, this is quite restricted, um, and you're actually governed by all the Facebook terms and conditions here. Um, and But where it gets exciting, but also a lot more tricky, is when you get into Facebook applications. Um, Facebook applications are a great way for your company, for marketeers, to offer the users something different, a completely different experience to other brands. So. Um, you know, Coca-Cola, they've got Track the Beat, others have um, competitions, um, other companies, travel companies, you can virtually travel around the world. <laughs> so it's a really great way of offering something different. But the interesting bit, I guess from a legal perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, is that a Facebook application appears to be part of Facebook, but it's actually living outside of Facebook. So it's very similar to a website. So Facebook makes it easy to enter this, but as soon as it goes into the app, it's still kind of within the Facebook window, but this application is actually hosted by the company, 
and the company is completely responsible for what happens here. And the way the handover works on Facebook is through applications. So we saw earlier, uh, sorry, through permissions, um, and we saw the flow earlier a little bit. But there are two interesting things, and one is very exciting for us. Um, it's the data, and the other ones are the terms and conditions. Because at this point here, the user agrees to actually play the game or opt in or become part or join your application. And at that point, they're governed by your terms and conditions and your privacy policies. Um, and this is something that's always a sticky point for us. So we've done quite a few Facebook applications with companies. And quite often, the, the marketeer that's responsible then goes back to the legal team, and they don't quite know what to do. Uh, and we quite often end up with kind of a cobbled version of their existing terms and conditions that are not really reflecting the nature. Um, so maybe some standard contracts or something that could be quite useful here. Um, so, but this at this point, the user then play selects play or join, um, and this is also where it gets really exciting for us, because as we learned earlier, at this point the users giving Facebook the permission to give you as the company a lot of data. So we heard about basic profile information, but that could also be date of birth. That could be the date of birth of all your friends. Um, that could be your location where you've checked in before. Um, that could be your religious views. So there's a, a lot of rich data, and marketeers are only just starting to really come around to understand how powerful this is. Um, and to give you a bit of an idea, Facebook were very, very restrictive. Initially, you could only use that data for 24 hours um, after the user had joined or when the user came back. Then they went to, you can use that data as long as the user has, is, is still has the app installed or has allowed the app. Once they removed the app, you had to remove your data. And now they've actually gone even further and said, you can actually keep the data as long as you're complying with all the data protection acts. So the user sends you a message, you have to remove the data. Um, and they're starting to open up as well because this data is great. Um, but what we then do is take the data and actually make it available to marketeers. So marketeers can now start looking at who exactly are these people, who are their friends, um, what segment are they in, and can start coming up with segments they want to market to, they want to send targeted messages. Um, and this is extremely powerful. So we're getting engagement click rates of 35% all the way up to 80%. If you compare that with email, email normally has click rates of somewhere between 1% and 5% if you're lucky. Um, so it's very efficient and effective, and that's because there's just so much data you can base your decisions on. And the next step then is, this data is great in isolation on Facebook, but what happens if you combine this data with your existing customer data in big CRM systems? And so, so there are a lot of challenges. So for us, it's very exciting, but I guess it's very, very challenging as well to understand how the data needs to be removed, what can be done with data uh, that's taken from, the, from an outside source and then is used within Facebook. And um, as I said, we're part of the preferred marketing program. And I, well, there was a big event last week, and I spoke with their legal team. And, and they're trying to refine the, the policies. And they're always a little bit behind the, what, what the marketeers are actually already doing with the platform. Um, so issues are the terms and conditions, privacy policy, permission base, and then data protection, data ownership. Um, so, and that's kind of my part. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah, don't, don't go too far, because um, hopefully we have some questions. But uh, thank you all very much for um, your attention so far. We've covered an awful lot of ground. I know we've, we've hopefully this is the start of a dialogue um, with, with you all about this.